Hark, the herald angels scream. What music they make. Oh, hello there. I didn't know you were here. Welcome to episode 37 of the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast. Brought to you by Library of the Damned. Please, make yourself comfortable. Grab yourself some tea, or perhaps eggnog, a glass of red. By red, I'm speaking of blood, of course. (laughs) We have an awesome guest this week. Christopher Golden joins us to discuss many a frightful thing. Some Christmas horror, including his latest anthology of horror-themed Christmas stories. So stick around. And how about we stop listening to me and we just get right into it. Welcome. Uh, Christopher Golden is the award-winning New York Times bestseller, best-selling author of such novels as Ararat, Snowblind, and of Saints and Shadows, among many, many others. He has also written books and comics in the world of Alien, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Hellboy, among others again. He is also well known for his work in YA, including Poison Ink, Solace, and the thriller series Body of Evidence. He has worked in many, many different things. He's basically done everything a writer could possibly <laughs> want to do in the past 25 years, and we are really honored to be talking with him today. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Uh, thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. So, as I as I mentioned, I mentioned that it's been 25 years um, since the publication of your first first book, which was of Shadows and Saints. Uh, that was published in 1994. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's actually of Saints and Shadows. I don't want to put you on the spot, but it's oh. of Saints and Shadows. <laughs> and um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it's uh, it will be in in I think May. It'll be 25 years, and I'm sort of gearing up to the idea of celebrating that um, uh, quarter century since my first novel. It's it's weird actually because it makes me feel super old to say that it's been that long. But I uh, I turned 51 this year, and that's not. I feel like I should I should be much older to have done that. So, <laughs> uh, do you have anything special that you're going to do for it? Um, yeah, I think so. When, for the 20th anniversary, I did a big event um, at a Barnes & Noble in Salem, New Hampshire, which is one of the places where I had done a lot of my early signings. Uh, it was just sort of a general celebration with a bunch of different books, and I had a number of author friends come and sort of showcase them. And although I don't know where I'm going to do it or what the date will be, I probably will do something similar for the 25th, and then, uh, you know, uh, and, and then that'll be it. Because it seems like a a milestone to mark it certainly is uh, did you ever think that you'd make it this far i never th- <laughs> i never think that far ahead to be honest <laughs> yeah. uh, you know i um i was fortunate enough to uh be in a situation where i i had no mortgage i had no kids um i sold that novel on 125 pages in an outline in 1992 the end of 92 and i quit my job um, I was, tw- uh, 25, I guess. Um, and I quit my job and, uh, just kind of never looked back. I definitely have, have had concerns over the years and it's a roller coaster. And many times I thought, 
I should get a, a real job. And uh, but but somehow I've managed to sort of keep afloat. Um, and so no, I mean I certainly never thought I hoped um, that I would still be able to sustain my career. And of course I'm 51. I'm still hoping. Um, you know. <laughs> I, I need another 25 years, I think, so we'll see. Yeah, I'm pretty sure almost every writer out there who's who's writing full-time has that worry, though. I mean, 90% of them. Yeah, I think I think 99%. Um, yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's a very rare thing to be able to write full-time, full-stop. Um, to be able to be a full-time writer, you know, um, so few of my uh, my friends who write are able to do that. And then um, to be able to do it without concerns is an incredibly rare thing indeed. 1994 was a completely different time period. Looking back on it, it, it seems like it was just yesterday, and yet it seems so far away. But but things have changed dramatically since the internet took over all, all our lives. How has the publishing business changed for you since then? You know, it's... Uh... It's difficult to say. I mean, uh, you know, we could we could choose any um, any dozen articles online about publishing and what it is now and why it's changed in bookstores and bookstores almost went extinct or independent bookstores almost went extinct. Barnes and Noble is in trouble, but now independent bookstores are 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 thriving again. Um, I will say, if anything, that publishers have changed editorial has changed the culture has changed and and the opportunity to to sell books has become much uh stricter it's a much higher bar um i if i were trying to get into the business now i would never have quit my job you know if, if it were if i were in the same situation i was in at the end of 1992 upon selling those books uh, it's kind of a dangerous thing <laughs> yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, now I know that you uh, you're really involved with uh, Nikon, and yeah. I've always wanted to go to Nikon, um, but you know it's just a matter of getting the money together and all that. But how did you become so involved with organizing panels and events for Nikon? Um, so Nikon, for those who, who are unfamiliar with it, Nikon is the Northeast Writers Convention. Um, it takes place in Rhode Island every July. Um, I, my first Nikon was Nikon 9, which was in 1989. I was 22 years old. Um, and I went and I loved it. Uh, I knew right then that, uh, you know, I, I wanted to continue going to it forever. And it's a very small convention. It's capped at 200 people. Um, but we've had some of the most amazing guests you can imagine over the years. And what happened was that Nikon was briefly sort of handed off to a, a new chair who, um, to, to be polite, I'll say, was not the best manager for the convention. And um, at a certain point, a group of us gathered together on the Sunday of a, a Nikon and decided, and I'd have to check what year it was, but it was a long time ago, um, and decided that we wanted to essentially sort of wrest control back. And one of the people who was involved in that conversation was the uh, the son of the originator um, of Nikon, who was Bob Booth, and his son Dan Booth was one of the people who was um, at that lunch. And from that point forward, I was a member of the committee. Um, and pretty quickly, uh, Craig Shaw Gardner and I um, were in charge of selecting guests and inviting guests and uh, um, and also doing the programming. 
Um, for a number of years, I hosted the annual Nikon Roast. And so uh, over the years, that just became a thing. And then I, I was really doing this sort of guest liaison thing myself. And in, the, in recent years, I've, I've, I've been doing it long enough that I passed most of my responsibilities on to uh, my friend Jack Haringa handles the guest liaison stuff now. And um, uh, Nick Kaufman and Jeff Strand host the roast. And um, uh, the programming is done by uh, uh, Jack and Nick and Matt Bechtel. And um, so I'm, I've retreated more to the uh, emeritus status at this point. I, I'm, I'm sort of the conciliary. Mm-hmm. So. that's that's a that's a pretty long history Uh, that's really awesome too now you're sort of moving into your own territory on this uh type of thing as on january the 24th of 2019 you and fellow author james a moore are are, uh hosting a writer's retreat at the trap family lodge in vermont now was your work with nikon an influence for organizing this um, you know, the reality is that um, uh, what happened was that uh, one of my best friends on earth was um, fellow author Rick Howdala, and Rick passed away five years ago, five and a half years oh, ago. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't think I realized sort of because so many of my contemporaries were not actually contemporaries, they're 20 years older than I am. Um or you know, fifteen to twenty years older than I am, I didn't view myself as as in a position to uh, to be concerned about bringing other authors up, about trying to build community and and all of those things. Um, and Rick tried to do those things quietly on his own. And so I would go to Nikon every year, and and I would very much feel it was about me. Uh, not not that the convention was about me, but that my experience was about me. That I wanted to go and. Um, see my friends and talk to the people I wanted to talk to and have my own sort of private experience there. Um, And when Rick passed away, it really got me thinking about the way that he treated younger authors, authors who were trying to make their their careers, and the sort of sense of welcome that he tried to provide. Um, And in his absence, I really felt like it was incumbent upon me to try to make a greater effort in that regard. So from that point forward, I tried to do more where Nikon was concerned and more where building community in the New England um, horror, and and not just New England, but in the horror community, in the New England writing community um, uh, writ large. Um, And so that's why I had founded um, the Merrimack Valley Halloween Book Festival. Um, Specifically with this, though, the Trap Family Lodge Winter Writers Retreat is something that um, we're just doing because it's nice to. It's sort of like having a convention with no convention. Um, it's there's there's there are no panels, there's no programming, there's no cost, and that's a big thing for me. The Merrimack Valley Halloween uh, Book Festival is free, uh, both to the writers who who uh, display their wares to try to sell and sign books and to people coming in the door. It costs nothing except whatever books they want to buy. Mm-hmm. So the, the Trap Family Lodge Winter Writers Retreat, um, obviously you have to pay for your room, but one of the reasons that we're not doing anything is because we felt that a lot of people just like the camaraderie. Um, and so what we're doing for this event is you come up, 
you rent your room and um, you can fit four people in a room depending on if you know how many people you want to jam in there but and we're gonna have sort of common space in which to write during the day if you want to write with other people um, or you can write in your room or you could choose not to write I'm probably not gonna get any work done up there I'm bringing my wife with me and uh, in the evening there'll be that same common space where if you'd like to read some of what you've written during the day you can do that but there's no pressure um, the idea is just to um, to reinforce the creative spirit and the love of writing um, and get energized by being in the presence of your fellow writers um, and I feel like so much of what people take home when they come to Nikon or other conventions is that new energy that sense of excitement about getting back to work about creating and that doesn't really have anything to do with the programming as great as the programming is um, it has to do with that sense of camaraderie and so um, that's one of the things that we're we're trying to accomplish with this um, winter writers retreat unfortunately the um, the discounted rate that we managed to get um, that that block has been released but there are still rooms available and we encourage people to uh, to come up and join us and and uh, be a part of that camaraderie and there's a Facebook page if people are interested in looking into this where they can there's a Facebook event anyway yeah if, if you're interested uh, definitely go and check that out because it sounds like a fantastic time if you ask yeah me. I think it's gonna be really great it's gonna be so relaxed and um, and laid back and that's that's really what we want you know we're just trying to uh, to widen the circle and uh, you know that's that's key so and I think it's also you know Jim and I are editing this anthology that we're so close to finishing now uh, we're, we we we're editing an open call anthology called the twisted book of shadows for our friend John McLevine's um, uh, Haverhill House publishers um, and it's an open. It was an open call. We had 700 submissions, wow. uh, and we're down to 42. Um, I think we'll probably be down to 25 by the end of uh, maybe the end of this week, but certainly by next week. Um, and so we're we're almost there. And um, yeah, so it, it's and and one of the things we wanted to do with that is really broaden the circle, to to throw um, the doors open wide. Um, you know, we really try to reach out into spaces where more marginalized writers um, or writers from marginalized communities, I should say, um, who don't not necessarily get the representation, don't get the encouragement to to come in to be part of the um, um, the established horror community would, you know, um, feel welcome with us. Uh, we really wanted to make sure that people, you know, went to that extent. And particularly, we wanted to make sure that that. Uh, that female writers, um, obviously writers of color, um, but but female writers, we always get this thing about how about the um, the ratio of women to men in in, uh, in anthologies. And one thing I think was really interesting is that we had um, now Jim and I don't know who wrote anything until the stories have been rejected or accepted, um, and we had twenty five percent. So even with all the efforts we made to to broadcast that we wanted um, uh, more women and more writers of color and uh, to to contribute to this book, um, just from looking at the email addresses, uh, Matt Bechtel has been the one who's in charge of all that. So this is his report um, that from what he was able to establish from looking at the email addresses, uh, but only about twenty five percent of the um, submissions were from women. 
um, which which is disappointing until you realize that um, he felt like we were running about 50-50 in, um, in the stories that we were interested in um, versus the stories we were passing on. So I don't know what the end result is going to be, um, but, you know, it, it is this effort that we're, that we're making. Um, you know, look, nobody makes a lot of money in this business, um, and, and you're lucky if you make any at all, frankly. Um, so what is the reward? The reward is the work. The reward is the quality. The reward is the community. Um, and that community should uh, include everyone who loves the things we all love. Yeah, indeed. I like that you're talking about diversity there. Um, you recently released a uh, an anthology called Hark! The Herald Angels Scream. And uh, that I found, I didn't do a count or anything, but it really feels like it's uh, almost 50-50 uh, men and women writers. Uh, I, I Since you're talking about it with this anthology, I imagine you went into it with that being purposeful, uh, to be diverse and uh, at least as diverse as you can be. Uh, why, why do you think it's important for uh, anthology, anthologies within our genre and all genres to be diverse today? It's such a great question. So first, I want to say, um, uh, I don't think Hark the, Herald, Hark the Herald Angels Scream or any other anthology deserves uh, pats on the back. And I, politely as possible, and I appreciate the way you framed that, but I want to sort of reject that idea um, that that it is I I did make an effort to be inclusive, but for other reasons, and um, it's not nearly as inclusive as it ought to be. Um, I think every one of us, no matter who we are, can make greater efforts, and I'll I'll touch on that again about another anthology in a second. But um, look, I know that there are people out there who think that efforts for inclusion. Uh, automatically mean that you're accepting lesser material. Um, that full stop immediately is racist and sexist. Um, the circumstances that have created the writing communities as they currently exist are the circumstances of the past. And the more effort that we make to create new circumstances, to weave these communities together, the more likely that we're going to have a diverse lineup in anthologies. I'm sort of talking in generalizations. I was a judge for the World Fantasy Awards this year, and um, I was incredibly proud of the list of nominees that we ended up with. It was an incredibly diverse list in many ways. For instance, the short story category was all women. Mm -hmm. um, this was an accident. So, and this is the thing that I find fascinating, is that, of course, there are all these people who... Um, who are like, oh, you know, SJWs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the judges gravitated toward the same kinds of material, um, even though the five judges, um, I knew Charles Vest previously. I had only a, a sort of tangential connection to Karen Warren previously. I didn't know Julia McKenna uh, or David Anthony Durham at all. Um, and we all come from different backgrounds, but we gravitated towards the same material. It was very quick to see which things sort of rose to the top of the conversation. And one of the reasons for that, and one of the reasons I think that the Twisted Book of Shadows results have been the way that they have been um, so far, is that we have, uh, we have read 
the story about the middle-aged white guy returning to his hometown and something supernatural is amiss um, and he needs to get involved and it's it's the whole, you know, um, you know, hometown boy makes good goes home to find hometown gone bad story, basically. Um, or some variation of that kind of thing. I have read that story. Hmm. N- no exaggeration. Thousand. I've written that story yeah. more than once. Um, and so if you send me that story, it needs to be the best version of that story that I've read in 20 years to compete because it's, it's crap, right? I mean, it's just yeah. it's the same thing over and over again. So, so um, we need other voices to save uh, our fiction from mediocrity. Um, to challenge us to come up with new ideas. To um, so if you're, uh, you know, um, if you're the same person who's been telling the same kinds of stories for the last uh, twenty years, or if all you've ever read are those things, and you're young and you're trying to replicate those things, you need these challenges of outside material. That's why you know teachers always tell writers: read outside your genre, read broadly, educate yourself, learn new things. Um, so diversity in genre fiction is not just valuable in and of itself uh, as something to read and be different and learn. Um, Diversity in genre fiction is value because genre fiction, I think, will die without it. I totally agree, honestly. Um, Because of that stale mate sort of uh, topic that you brushed upon where the, the, uh, you know, straight male, uh, white male, uh, you know, there's only so many stories you can tell over and over again before it becomes stale. And right. You do need a, a type. It's not just the authors. It's the story, the type of story that needs to be refreshed. Right. And you know, the thing is, honestly, again, I've been, a, I've been a basically a mid-list author my whole career for 25 years and I've hung on and I, you know, I, I've written some books that I think are crap and I've written some books that I think are really good. Um, and, uh, if I can't compete because all of a sudden the spectrum is broader um, and the competition is wider and people want other things and fresher things and newer things, if I can't compete, then I shouldn't be published. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you're intimidated by uh, the, I, the idea that readers want other things and publishers want other things, um, then uh, you know this is the environment you're competing in. Um, and, and so, so yeah, I mean, I just, this is where I, you know, I think this is just a symptom of the broader issue that we're dealing with. You know, if you, you know, I think, uh, white people in general, men in general, um, straight people in general, although I think less so in that, in that sense, but white people in general and men in general, consciously or subconsciously, um, get nervous because you're broadening the pool of people with whom you have to compete. Yeah, to succeed, and guess what? Tough shit. Suck it up. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like uh, you know, uh, there are so many high school teams in the U.S. and college teams in the U.S. now where you have um, here and there you have girls who are playing uh, football, um, and there's uh, one team where uh, the the quarterback is is a girl, and um, and I say girl, that's uh, a high school team, I think. Um, so if you have a girl or a woman who's competing for a spot, 
Um, you know, if 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 you wish you were that quarterback, well, guess what? She's better than you. Um, and this, this is this is this is no different. So, um, we can't continue to allow people to be marginalized, to allow voices to be marginalized. And the only way to do to fix that is to actively work against marginalization. Um, now that said, going back to Hark the Herald Angel Scream um, and other anthologies I've done. Um, I certainly have tried to make an effort to have a better balance of male and female writers, but I've never been satisfied with um, uh, with the result of any of the anthologies that I've done. Um, so actually, uh, next year, you're going to see an anthology that I, I, I'm putting together with Rachel Autumn Deering, um, mm. who herself is a phenomenal writer. She is, um, yes. a Fantastic editor. And uh, Rachel and I are editing an anthology uh, for Titan Books called Hex Life, um, which I don't think we've announced yet, so I'm announcing it here. I'm not going to tell you who the contributors are because um, the book is complete. We're just finishing up a couple of stories, um, so the lineup is complete. But we're doing um, an all-female lineup, and that's one, and even in that instance, so it's all women writing about witches, about their witches, and there was some conversation about whether I should even be involved with it because it's it's all women um but rachel and i are editing it together um and even then once you get to that point where it's an anthology all of women you get to this question of well what about a diversity amongst the writers um you know do we have women of color do we have uh, women from the lgbtq community and and these are conversations that a lot of people i know would roll their eyes at and and i think that they should all get a real smash in the nose. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, throughout history, anthologies have almost primarily been, you know, male-dominated. Right. Maybe one or two females at the most. And and I, I'm personally excited seeing uh, a much more diverse... Uh, you know, I, I'm actually kind of against the word diverse because it shouldn't have to exist, in my opinion. But that's neither here nor there. Well, it shouldn't. It shouldn't have the meaning that it has. Yeah, you know? exactly. Diverse is supposed to only mean you know different voices. You know, you have a diversity of of, of voices. But and again, I'll, I'll just finish up by saying, the entire point of this is that it is good for the genre. It is good for fiction. It is good for coming up with new and exciting takes on things that you haven't seen before, um, and. Uh, you know, and it's also good for humanity. <laughs> exactly. That's well said. Okay, so it's Christmas. Yes, sir. And uh, and you've published, or you edited a uh, an anthology that we've mentioned, Hark the Herald Angels Scream. Now, I've, I've read this, and I really enjoyed all the stories in this anthology, and that's rare for me. Uh, you got stories in here from the likes of Joe R. Lansdale, Josh Mailerman, Kelly Armstrong, uh, Sarah Penborough, Sarah Langan, Jonathan Mayberry, James A. Moore, Jeff Strand, Scott Smith, and so many more. It's it's really a blockbuster. Uh, what were some of the challenges that you had getting this anthology out there? Well, I mean, um, so bluntly put, anthologies are one of those things that you do, and unless you're Ellen Datlow, um, whom I adore, uh, they don't love you back. You know, I mean, it is so hard to sell an anthology which in many ways is why we ended up doing the Twisted Book of Shadows the way we did. But basically, um, the way that I do anthologies now, um, I come up with the concept and I solicit the writers first 
for their intention to participate. And I sell the list, essentially. I go to the various publishers and I say, or my, my agent will take the, the pitch around to publishers and, and say, this is what the um, anthology is, and here are the contributors. Um, and that is really, you know, for me at least, I don't know how it works for other people, but for me at least, that's the only way um, to get an anthology sold to a mainstream publisher. And so sometimes you end up with, uh, you know, something that is 75% what you want it to be um but you know it, it it is uh it is definitely difficult and it's only getting harder because anthologies a successful anthology is a unicorn mm -hmm. right i mean to have an anthology that an anthology that sells well is so rare um of all the anthologies that i've done um not including the hellboy anthologies um the new dead is the best seller and it earned out and has earned the contributors uh, many times over what they were paid initially for their stories. Um, it's the only one that has earned out thus far, although I think that Hark to Herald Angel Scream is going to, and that makes me very happy because thus far it seems to be doing very well. I mean, obviously it's a phenomenal Christmas gift for anybody who likes horror. They they published it well. Um, the, it came out in October, so we could get the double dip with Halloween and Christmas. But it's a terrible business, and, it, and it's disheartening to say the least because it... Uh, it means that it's you know it's more and more difficult to do it um, to get any publisher to, to invest in an anthology. Well, you'll be happy to know that I've bought both the the audio version, uh, actually all three <laughs> formats you can get. I, I bought the audio version, the hard copy, and the ebook because I plan on reading this perhaps every year. And that brings me to the idea, is this going to be maybe an annual thing or? I mean, it really depends on how it does. So um, if indeed, it, certainly we wouldn't be able to put one out in time for next Christmas, I don't think. Um, if it's selling as well as it appears to be selling, I imagine we will do a second one. Um, and I would love to do a second one because I had so much fun with it. I mean, just seeing the, uh, um, you know, there's such a great, tradition of christmas ghost stories and christmas horror stories and um and just seeing the uh the stories that turned out for this book i mean i, I can't even begin to uh to go through each story my favorite thing about the book and you know most anthologies are like this but this one even more so is that every review you look at um people have different favorites you know um it's it's like forrest gump you know an anthology is like a box of chocolates right <laughs> yeah um, so you just never know. I mean, somebody's favorite is going to be this story, and the next person is going to say that they hated that story, but their favorite was this other one. You know, and um, and that's what I love about reading the reviews is that uh, you know, sort of like everyone has their chance to shine. So it's it's been it's been great, and I just love to see people's commentary. Um, but it's been you know it's been great, um, and I I can't say enough how happy I was with. Um, the weirdness. I mean, I love things yeah. like you know, um, Sarah Langan sent me her story and was convinced that I wasn't going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, but I love the weird ones. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like it's just nice to 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 have this outlet for people. For sure. Uh, I noticed that this the stories within this anthology. You don't necessarily have to be a Christian or even a fan of Christmas in order to love this book, but it also works well for people who do love the holidays. Uh, was this like an accident, or did uh, did you have this sort of in mind? Well, um, 
I I think it's just a result of the the authors who are involved. You know, um, if you choose well in in who you're inviting into the book, you're going to get a real diversity of story. Yeah. Um, and so um, some of these are sort of uh, classic Christmas tales set in in the Victorian past. Some of them are set in apocalyptic futures. Um, some of them are uh, intimate little terrors, uh, things that Blumhouse would make into a film. Um, Josh Mallerman's story comes to mind. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's just, um, you know, it's just a result of, of that. In fact, Josh initially had said he was going to write a Hanukkah story, and I was totally fine with that. Yeah. Um, but I think his, his muses took him elsewhere. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's a. I think it's a. Regardless of what you believe, it's a fantastic horror anthology. So, oh, uh, one more question before I finally let you go. Um, sure. Aside from the stories in Hark, of course, um, do you have any favorite horror themed Christmas stories? Um, well, I mean, we're talking movies as well, right? Sure. Yes. So, so the, the few things that come to mind immediately, novel-wise, uh, everyone needs to read Robert Devereaux's uh, hideous Christmas classic, Santa Steps Out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read Santa Steps Out, as soon as you finish reading Hark the Herald Angels Scream, Move on um, to that. <laughs> you, you must go and read uh, Santa Steps Out because it's um, if you're a horror fan... Uh, it's a must read. It's it's wrong on every possible level. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and then you know I think about movies and uh, uh, you know, first of all, it's a wonderful life is a you know is a supernatural story. Let's let's say that right off the bat. Obviously, a Christmas Carol, um, but rare exports. And I don't want to say too much about it. It's a um, it, it's it's a it was Scandinavian. I can't think of it's Norwegian or Swedish. It's a film uh, about people finding the remains of the being who is the reason the myth of Santa Claus exists. Hmm. And it goes horribly, horribly wrong. But um, if, if you like this kind of thing, uh, you should absolutely watch it. It is not for children <laughs> <laughs> at all. Um, but... It's great. It's a it's a must watch for your holiday season. Yeah, I don't think I've uh, heard of that one. I'm going to check it out. Oh yeah, rare exports. Excellent. All right. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. For uh, it's okay. I call you Chris, right? Of course. Okay. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show with us. Is there anything else that you'd like to to mention before uh, before we let you go? Uh, no, just that uh, I you know I hope everyone uh, enjoys the quiet of the end of the year and uh, and I hope that 2019 is a better year for everyone. Me too. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris, for coming on. Take care. You too. You can find the Great Lakes Horror Company on Facebook. Just search for us by name and on Twitter at. GL Horror Podcast. If you have a question, comment, or an idea for a future show, please email us at glhc at horror-writers.ca. The Great Lakes Horror Company is sponsored by libraryofthedamned.com. It was created by Andrew Robertson and is produced by Sefer Garin, 
Monica S. Kubler, and Jason White. Our theme music has been provided by Leslie Kervorst. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you again next time.